Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP as we ease on into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, and a beautiful WIP Sunday it promises to be. The sun is shining. We're going to be in the middle to upper 60s. It's going to be a nice day to be out and about. No matter where you go, take 94 WIP with you because you'll have good conversation while you're doing your Sunday chores. Okay. Everybody should have at least one life-changing moment. A life-changing moment occurred for Robert Kennedy, and it's documented in a new book by Ellen Meacham, that new book, Delta Epiphany, RFK to Mississippi. What might have happened out of that trip to Mississippi if he had managed to stay and be elected president? Let me say good morning to Ellen Meacham. Good morning, Ellen. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Peter, I'm glad to be here. It really was a life-changing moment because here was a man who grew up with wealth and privilege. Right, right. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't as if he hadn't seen poverty before because he had had an interest in poverty. He'd worked with Bedford Stuyvesant in New York, um, which was a, a public-private partnership in, in an area that um, needed redevelopment, and and also in the Appalachian area corner of New York, but. Um, what he saw in Mississippi was worse than anything he'd ever seen in this country, as he told one of the aides. Um, and he was uh, just stunned and appalled by it, and then appalled and uh, a bit stunned at the resistance to trying to help the, um, the situation. So he saw, saw some, some terribly destitute children. I think that was what got to him the most. Of all the books you could have written, though, Ellen, why this one? Well... That's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm calling from outside uh, Oxford, Mississippi, and I think it's a requirement that I have to quote William Faulkner since he's from, from here. But um, William Faulkner had a quote that I, uh, I came across that said, um, every good story starts with an image or a memory. And that image, I, uh, one of my colleagues um, here at the University of Mississippi Journalism School he had been a newspaper, a young newspaper reporter, went on to report for the Boston Globe for a long time, Chris Wilkie. He wrote a memoir, and in that he described um, being in that shack with Robert Kennedy in Cleveland, Mississippi, when Kennedy got down on the floor and tried to coax a response out of this listless child that was picking up crumbs of cornbread and rice and beans off the floor, every, every trying to get every little crumb. And he could tell, Kennedy could tell that this child had... Um, not been given the kind of nourishment that he needed just by looking at him. He, and, um, and and so Curtis Wilkie described that scene, and, and I just couldn't, in his memoir, as a young reporter, it made a huge impression. And I, it kept it stuck with me, and it was sort of that juxtaposition, as you said, of this son of power and privilege and, and sort of the, um, the Kennedys, at least in photographs, always have these this kind of glow of a sort of American promise. You know, they, they just had a certain charisma, visual charisma, too. And so this image of him, and I had been a young, when I was a young reporter, I um, reported in North Mississippi, too, and I knew what some of those places were like, maybe not not quite like they were in 67, but um, so I just couldn't shake that image, and I had two thoughts. The first one was, well, how did that affect Robert Kennedy? And the second one was what happened to that baby that he was trying to, the, the toddler he was trying to 
um, get a response from. And so I sort of just set myself on the task to try to find the child. And the more that I um, researched about Kennedy, I realized what, what an impact that it had. And it was recounted in all of his biographies um, as a, you know, very important, <clears throat> excuse me, significant moment. And so... So that's kind of, I sort of just assigned myself homework for about 10 years is what I did. Do you have any sense, though, of where this interest in poverty and poor folk came from? Well, um, you know, several bi- biographers have tried to take a look at that. And I think, you know, one one theory, and I think it's a pretty good one, is that he was the, se- he was the seventh of nine children, and, and his father, Joseph Kennedy, very focused on the older three older children, um, Joe, Joe, who was killed in World War II, um, and Kathleen and John, and um, so because he put such an emphasis on the older children and had such high hopes for them, he really um, and and they were all high, such high achievers. And Bobby Kennedy, as a child, was was small for his age. He wasn't particularly athletic, although he played a lot of sports and tried he he was um he, he was always a lot more in uh you know got high marks for determination rather than just actual skill i think he he just kind of identified with the left out from the time he was little and you know and he grew up he um you know a lot of his formative years were spent during the depression in america and even though his family was shielded from it you couldn't uh, from it, the actual um, impact of it, you couldn't escape seeing and, and hearing and knowing about people who were less fortunate than you. That was a, a main theme of so much of popular culture and media at the time. So I think that kind of played into it. Uh, I think he genuinely loved children, even his enemies. Nobody, everybody uh, um, recognized that he had a special connection with children. He, and so I think that's part of what kind of got to him. But he was also just really good, and he got better after, unfortunately, some of the tragedies he endured at taking the pr- perspective of someone else and asking himself, what would it be like to, to live like that? Where would I be if I had... You know, if I, if, that had, if I had grown up in that situation, where would I be? So, so I think it was kind of a combination of some of his own personalities, life experiences, and, you know, cultural influences. What led him, though, then to go to Mississippi? Well, you know, I, when I first, that was one of the surprises of the book. When I first started, I, I just assumed it was like what we're used to now, which, and there's nothing wrong with it, but where someone uses their celebrity to go and, um, call attention to a problem, whether it's in another country or in this country, and they, they, they get attention because the media follows them and they, they use that to, to take the media to see. And that. But um, I'm sure he was not, not – I'm sure he was aware that media would go where he went, but he was actually – it was actually a working trip. He, by this time, he had resigned as attorney general after his brother's death and the Civil Rights Act was passed and had run for – Senate from New York and was um, serving in the Senate, and he was on the subcommittee uh, that was called the Employment, Manpower, and Poverty um, Subcommittee in the Senate, and they were looking at the war on poverty. It was about two and a half years in, and some of the programs were going to be up for renewal. So they were looking at some of these, and they had a hearing in Washington, and this young woman who kind of turns out to be, uh, you know, the heroine of the book, um, 
says, goes up from Mississippi. She's 27 years old, Yale-educated attorney for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and one of only five African-American attorneys in Mississippi, and the only woman, African-American woman, to pass the bar at that time. And she goes off topic. She's supposed to talk about Head Start, but um, she does a little, answers some questions, and then she just looks at him and says, "Look, people are hungry, people are starving, and they are. Some of them are worse off because of some of these well-meaning programs, um, and somebody needs to do something about it." She was very forthright with them. So the committee decided to hold its next hearing in Mississippi. Um, so they came down for that, and. The trip to the Delta, which is the northwest corner of Mississippi, it's about 18 counties along the Mississippi River, um, about a 200-mile stretch of the river there. And um, so they flew there the second day of their trip. And um, and Daniel Shore, who was a CBS news reporter at the time and then later became a um, national public radio commentator and others, author, and he, but he was covering the trip, and he likened them in his report to an inspector general. So it wasn't so much just a poverty tour. He was there to ask questions. He didn't want to, um, what surprised me was that, you know, he had pulled one of the, one of the journalists who was on the trip that I tracked down, he um, told me that Kennedy pulled him aside the night before they went and said, who can I trust here? Who can I, um, which of these activists Tell, is going to tell me the truth and not try, you know, basically try to manipulate me. And uh, one of his, one of Kennedy's former aides said that, you know, he was a rich man's son and he has been, he all his life he'd had people trying to make him or get him to think one way or another. And he was also a former prosecutor, so he made unscheduled stops. He didn't just go to the homes that were selected by people who were activist he would say let's just stop here and he'd knock on the door and ask the same questions and he found some terribly um empty cupboards and terribly you know people who had just maybe one meal a day or they could only feed their children um some cornbread and molasses or just some beans occasionally um but not meat not milk those kinds of things he found hunger what else did he find well, he found resistance and denial because the um, one of the, the the editor of the lo- local newspaper showed up when he was in one of the poor sections of Cleveland, Mississippi, and said, you know, came around the corner, what the basically, what the hell are you doing here? Um, and uh, Senator Kennedy, why don't you go back up north? You know, you got plenty of poverty in Harlem, you've got pr- plenty of pro- poverty somewhere else. And and acted, you know, reacted very resentfully, like, you know, why are you trying to make us look bad? Let's go to the nice part of town. Um, and the the man said, this was after Kennedy had been in a few homes and had been talking to this one family um, that was just terrible, had about 15 people living in a very small, basically a couple of rooms. And um, the man, the editor said, you know, there was this kind of confrontation, and Kennedy was, um, you know, uh, not someone who shot away from a confrontation, but he was very calm, and he said, 
the, the editor said, there's no one starving here because Marion Wright in the hearing the day before had said people are starving and someone must do something about it. And so there's no one starving here. There's nobody hungry here. And Kennedy said um, with the kind of sly grin, well, step over here and I'll introduce you to some, some of them um, and pointed to these children that um, if you look in the book, there's some photographs that have never been published before that I tracked down. And, you know, they're pretty, those are the children that he was, pointing to what what a horrendous story and it was only just not food wasn't it wasn't it poor housing right right it was you know a collection of all kinds of things and it was particularly bad time for the people um in the delta at that time because there was this wave of mechanization that in 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 changes in technology and changes in farming practices changes in um the, the a new kind of herbicide had in about you know, an 18-month period had thrown about 25,000 people out of work, you know, that had been getting by. And then they later did a study a year or so later and found that they were actually worse off than they were in the late 50s, 10 years earlier in terms of, um, you know, they'd always been poor, but they were quite destitute because uh, the way the system had worked had been kind of bumping along, um, Not certainly not a good Good, not in a good way, but they had been getting by by working in the agricultural, in the cotton um, fields. The whole family would often work, um, children and um, elderly during the season, and they would be paid. By this time, the sharecropping system had kind of diminished and just about disappeared, but they were day labor, um, so they were paid by the day. And so they would um, chop cotton, which means uh, to... When the seeds, the cotton seedlings come up, um, you have to uh, hoe the weeds away from it till it gets tall enough to survive on its own. So that took a lot of hand labor. And um, when the, they passed the farm workers' minimum wage and it went in effect, and they developed an herbicide that would called pre-emergent, so it would kill the weeds before they sprouted. Those folks weren't needed, and so it was. A lot of the farmers made the calculation that it was cheaper to buy one of those big combine machines, um, and so you had 24,000 people who who, lo- who lost their work, but there were about 50,000 in the area who also lost the place where they lived, who were affected in the family because oftentimes where they lived, the houses, housing they lived on was on the land that they worked and so um they were uh, in the process of knocking down those shacks and move if you can't if they didn't need you to work they didn't let you live there or some people let them live there but didn't invest anything in the housing um so so there was quite a bit of migration at the time and and some of the some of the uh people who were trying to help them on the ground some of the the um uh, advocates for them, they uh, they believed that Mississippi officials were specifically trying to starve the people out and and force them to migrate to the cities in the north or um, places like Memphis or um, Chicago or uh, Philadelphia or New York or any of those places. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Ellen Meacham. Her new book, Delta Epiphany, RFK, Robert Francis Kennedy in Mississippi. Ellen, yeah, I need you to stay with me. Got to run a few commercials. 
Absolutely. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 716. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, 94 WIP. My guest this morning, Ellen Meacham, journalist, professor, author. Her new book, Delta Epiphany, RFK in Mississippi. Hi, Peter. It's good to be here. Glad to have you back. Um, Ellen, I would imagine he found not only poor African-American or black folk, but he found poor white folk, too. He did. Um, And that's a very good question. Although in the Delta region, um, the population, the the poor population was heavily African-American, but there certainly were um, some white folks who were um, poor, and it's the same, same is true in Mississippi today. Um, but uh, the, the, he, and, and when he had the hearing in Jackson, they had testimony from all, all over the state, and that included some areas that were or they're predominantly white or more um, equally mixed. But um, in the Delta, where he saw, um, because it had been a heavy, uh, an agricultural region for so long and a heavy farming region, especially cotton farming, you had sort of the, some of the legacy of slavery there and high populations of um, African-American. And, you know, the thing that you need to, need to understand, too, about Mississippi in 67 is that the Voting Rights Act had just passed, but um, it was, you know, on the ground still starting to unfold. And so the people that he met, the parents, and I think part of this is what um, motivated him and shocked him so, was sort of the intersection of, of civil rights. And those people in um, that he met, the parents, they had been um, denied the right to vote or to, you know, sort of even participate in any kind of um, part of their government uh, as citizens, as the American citizens as they were, uh, for generations. And so they couldn't elect people who might help their situation uh, because they were excluded and um, threatened or uh, left out um, of the, you know, it was an all-white voting population. The people who were elected were elected almost 100% or 90% um, by white voters and, and African Americans were not allowed to participate. We have to remember, I think, that this is a Mississippi of whites-only bathrooms, colored drinking fountains, and African Americans sat in the balcony of the movie theater. Right, right. And, you know, and that, as horrible as that is, that wasn't um, the worst of it because they weren't actively um, allowed, they were actively discouraged and actively threatened or beaten or killed if they tried to, arrested, fired from their job, if they tried to register to vote or to ask for better um, uh, facilities for their children. You know, the Mississippi, for a very long time, in many places, didn't even provide a, a school building. They would um, pay for a teacher, but the communities, the, the African-American communities had to find a building. Usually it was a church or something, or they even met in old school buses. And so in 1967, you had a, um, about a 100 and. Uh, 60,000 people out of 2 million, um, mostly African-American, who had less than a fourth-grade education, and you had another um, 40,000 or so that had no education at all. Um, So Mississippi had not... So, And and by the lack of access to their civil rights, um, they couldn't do anything 
to um, much, you know, to change their uh, circumstances. And so I think what Kennedy saw was it wasn't just um, a question of, oh, I can't go to the voting booth, or, oh, it's not just a question of um, this, this water fountain or another. I think that it really, he really made the connection between the lack of access to political power and that just, that also meant children, you know, cried in the night because they didn't have enough hunger, enough food, or children grasped for um, crumbs on the floor because um, the, uh, the lack of access to power that their families had. And if it wasn't bad enough with not enough food, poor housing, poor education, it was probably poor health care. Oh, yes, absolutely. And they sent some doctors down the next, uh, the, they went in April, and then on the um, Memorial Day weekend, five doctors, um, a team went down from the north, and uh, um, one of the few African-American doctors in Mississippi met them, and they traveled around to eight counties, um, and including some of the ones that Kennedy saw, and uh, examined children who were at the Head Start programs. And there's this one scene, I got a hold of one of those doctors from um, who was from Yale, and it was in his 80s when I talked to him a couple of years ago, since passed, but he he talked about how when the word got out that there were doctors there, and they were just there, they couldn't practice medicine because they weren't licensed in Mississippi. They were only there kind of as a fact-finding to do some basic examinations and record what they saw, that people lined up, adults, children, babies came from all over um, and lined up outside the church building where they were asking for care, and they found diseases that were only... um, that, that, that were not thought to be in America, that they were considered malnutrition diseases and anemia and um, this uh, a disease where if you don't get enough protein, your body kind of devours your muscles and um, things like that. So they, they found children with abscessed teeth and um, heart conditions that could have easily been co- corrected at birth, but now were long-time problems. And... So and so they did a report, and you know, of course, the Mississippi officials said, "Oh, this is gross libel. This is um, not true at all. Not true at all." But then, the uh, Mississippi State uh, Health Department quietly did its own survey and found the same things because there are some some a few counties that didn't even have a hospital, and if you were African American, if there was a hospital there. You had to go, and you had to wait till every white person, no matter how minor the injury was, to be treated, even if you were dying. And people did die for want of care. Now, that wasn't in every hospital. Other, not every hospital had that policy, but some of them did. And the problem is there's no, there was no recourse for anybody if there was that situation. I would imagine, Ellen Meacham, that you cried a lot when you, <laughs> when you researched the book. Um, that's, that's a very good question too, Peter. You know, I'd been a newspaper reporter, and one of the one of my beats was the court beat. So I had, you know, seen and covered a lot of really sad and painful and difficult things. But this was just seems like such a um, such a waste and such a um, a situation of sort of um, deliberate deliberate blindness on the, and intentional, sometimes intentional cruelty, sometimes unintentional neglect. Um, 
and it did. It, it made it, it made me sad, and it made me a little angry. Although I tried to really write it from a um, my skills better at being descriptive instead of proscriptive. I can't. I'm not a poverty expert, so I, I, I don't have on policy. I can't, you know, go into deep analysis of which what exactly should have been done, but. The other thing I try to be careful about is judging because just about everybody in America, either in their own county or perhaps one county over, there are still hungry children in America who don't get enough to eat. It, it looks different. And oftentimes one of the points I make that um, we don't realize that obesity can um, be signs of malnutrition or food insecurity. Because if the children don't get enough food to eat regularly or don't have access to the right food, but also just don't have enough regularly, your body holds on to it for the lean times. And so um, so we have today children who are malnourished in a different way. It's kind of paradoxical. They're not the skin and bones that Kennedy saw, but they're um, overweight yet malnourished. Um, so there's, there's there, I felt like there's room for all of us to to do better in every part of the country. And that's what Kennedy saw. Once once he saw it in Mississippi, he saw it in eastern Kentucky, he saw it on Native American reservations in California, and one of the things that came out of his visit was a, um, na- there had never been a nationwide nutritional survey in terms of, you know, what do you, people all over the country, what, what, what kind of nutritional levels are they, do they have access to, what, what kind of food are they eating, what are they getting, and, and they found that they were, um, there were people everywhere who didn't have access or didn't have um, the finances to eat uh, a healthy um, diet, and so not not just eat. We're not just talking about eating healthy. It's just having an access to food, enough food that they needed to get by every day of the month, and that there were times when they didn't have enough food or went hungry. Um, and that's the other thing he did is move it from the abstract because poverty is a really – it's kind of a moving target, isn't it? Um, you know, if everybody drew a picture of what poverty looked like, we'd all have something different in different um, eras. Poverty, um, you know, would be defined differently slightly. Uh, but we can all connect with hunger. Like everybody, even if you're well off, there's been at least some time when you didn't ha- – couldn't couldn't eat and you were hungry and you know what that feels like and to know that you would feel that day after day and not have um, a way to make that better when your body is growing um, would I think people could connect with that and understand that a lot better than this abstract idea of poverty and you make an important point when you say it's still a problem today especially when we have a president who wants to cut the SNAP program. Yeah, you know, that's just kind of baffling to me because um, we're just not that far out of a recession. We've been, things have been, um, you know, we've had growth for quite a few economic growth, but it's not, hasn't been kind of even. And, you know, we're in the middle, sort of, in America, one of the things that I noticed in that um, book I thought that applied to other parts of the country, um, like parts of Pennsylvania and, and others, is that we they didn't do a very good job of anticipating what would happen when technology disrupted um, a kind, an economic system that while it wasn't perfect, it was working. And so once 
all of that changed, or global in, the global impact of um, you know jobs moving overseas. They didn't do a very good job of anticipating it. They didn't do a very good job of figuring out ways to help the people who were going to be displaced, and and we are seeing that more and more and more. And um, uh, I think. And it's happened quite, you know, you can look at any industry. And where I came from, the newspaper industry, there are quite a few people who are off the, um, uh, off the, um, you know, not, not, not newspaper reporters anymore because the jobs have been cut or people who were um, worked in factories and they've shut down. And, oh, some of those people have needed that aid or need that aid to get by until they can be retrained or find another job or something else. You mentioned that you were able to track down the little girl that so affected Robert Kennedy. What did you find? Right. Well, I found it's actually in some places it had been reported a girl, but it was actually a little boy. Um, and he, uh, his, his family, he had older brothers and sisters who were um, not, uh, who I think had suffered a good bit more. His life and, and his younger brother, who was a baby, I think theirs improved a good bit because um, he one one of them said uh, that Robert Kennedy's visit changed our mother's life because she had been denied any kind of welfare. She had six children um, and had lost her job working in the fields and worked a little bit for her family in town, but that's the only income she had. And she had been to the welfare office twice trying to get help, and in those days, the local office could deny you if they, if they considered you, if, you know, that you had to meet a certain criteria. They denied a lot of people. Um, it was based on their character analysis of you, and so she'd been denied twice for really no reason. And um, they said that after Robert Kennedy came, they were knocking the county officials were knocking on her door, um, and uh, she got well some welfare at that point, and the food stamps were uh, Kennedy was able. It took longer than he expected, but they waived the. Um, requirements that you had to buy food stamps back then. You had to buy food stamps um, for certain, like for $2, for $20 um, worth of food stamps. And uh, so they waived the requirement for the poorest people because when he went back to Washington, there were some people who didn't believe, some officials who didn't believe that there were people who had no income in America. Everybody had some kind of income. and But he said, I met some yesterday. I saw them. They don't. Um, and so um, this child, uh, Annie White's children, uh, they had money for shoes after that, occasionally a toy. They, um, the officials, I think, in town were embarrassed by the conditions, and so they paved the road and they pulled down the shack where they lived and moved, moved to a better, slightly better house. And then a little bit later they were able to qualify for some federal housing and they had um, indoor plumbing and um, uh, you know, a washing machine and some other things. And so uh, they grew up in a more stable kind of housing situation and more regular food. Um, he went on to be uh, started out as um, cutting the grass for a steak company when he was about 15, a steak restaurant chain. And, and went on to learn to cook and managed one of those assistant manager and then was, you know, he's worked over the years. He owned his own house now and, you know, not certainly not affluent but um, stable kind of 
life in um, Texas, four four sons, and um, uh, some of them have finished college and others are in the military or still in school. And so um, it's a, you know, he, he was, um, when I met up with him, he had been installing lights on a team that installed lights for a dollar store chain until there had been an accident. Um, a truck, semi truck had hit the van that they were in, and so he was um, recovering from an injury then. But um, so, uh, so, so you know, it's not a, any kind of fairy tale, but there was some improvement, um, and then a lot of hard work on his part too. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My guest this morning, my guest this morning, Ellen Meacham, her new book, RFK, in Mississippi, a Delta Epiphany. Ellen, got to run commercials again. Stay with me. We'll be back in just a bit. Okay, sure. And we're back into the home stretch here on WIP Sunday with Ellen Meacham, author of Delta Epiphany, RFK in Mississippi. My name's Peter Solomon. Ellen, did. Yes. Kennedy's trip to Mississippi make any lasting change or just another report for another dusty shelf? No, no, it did. It shifted the conversation from um, from poverty to hunger, and it brought attention to how while, you know, one of the, some, one of the things that had really affected these people was a change in the food aid policy from free commodity distribution um, to food stamps, which overall was a good thing for families because um, the commodity distribution were uh, mostly starches and things like rice and beans and um, cornmeal and flour, occasionally some salmon, and food stamps gave them access to all kinds of other choices and, and a wider nutritional um, kind of um, selection. But in the Delta, because at the time you had to buy the food stamps, um, people had lost their job and they couldn't buy the food stamps and then they couldn't get the free commodities, so they were really in the bind. So it brought attention to the fact that it wasn't always just a one-size-fits-all, that different regions needed a different kind of approach. Um, it also, it, so, and it also shifted a lot of people, even some southern uh, elected officials who had never had to appeal to African-American voters um, they could uh, be more comfortable with the idea of feeding hungry people and, and feeding hungry children um, than the abstract poverty. So it, it got some support there. They created a, um, a Senate Select Committee on Hunger that did a lot, and, and, it, and it grew out of that work. And, you know, I should mention Senator Joseph Clark from Pennsylvania um, was on that trip with Kennedy and in the Delta and in that shack with him. And he, poor, poor old Senator Clark sometimes gets overlooked, but he was chairman of that committee. Um, and so he and, and then Senator Javits, Jacob Javits, a um, liberal Republican from New York, um, they were in Mississippi, and they, uh, after Kennedy was killed, you know, carried on some of the work. But it also shifted the political, I mean, the, the media conversation because of the coverage it got, and I think also this sort of astonishment. Um, so much of the coverage, not a, you know, not 100%, but much of the coverage in the um, media landscape in 67 and, and popular culture, the news really showed America the image of a post-war, prosperous post-war America, booming, booming economy, and 
um, to see those images coming out of America really um, was kind of shocking. And so more news organizations, CBS later did The Hunger in America, was um, n not exactly a direct thing, but it, it brought it to New York, the New York Times and uh, lots of other places started looking at hunger in their own areas and writing about it, um, and so there was a good bit more attention to it. They did change some of the policy, but it took 10 years to change the policy that you had to buy the food stamps, and then it changed till 1967. So it's a little hard to say, okay, he went there and this policy happened. It wasn't just quite, kind of like a um, wand, magic wand, but he went to eastern Kentucky and brought attention to um, the poverty there and some real destitution there and you know what like you said it wasn't always African Americans it was Americans of all types that were um, being left out of this post-war prosperity and um, so it it oh, also a little bit later because of all the attention the women and infants infants and children food aid program came along and one of the things that Kennedy I think would be happy about today because there are still hungry people in the Delta and that would dismay him and elsewhere in America um, he would be um, happy to know that you know now every just about every school district in the nation offers free lunches and free often free breakfast so children at least have the access to that because um, uh, in 1967, counties could opt out of that, and the counties in Mississippi had, many of the counties in Mississippi. Did. So these children didn't get, that he saw weren't getting any kind of free or reduced-price lunches at school. They're, one of the, do, the women I, I talked to said that her teacher would buy one extra, out of her personal money, would buy one extra um, meal ticket a week, and a, a child who didn't usually get to eat would get to use that ticket for a week. Um, and she just still, you know, 50 years later, her face lit up at the idea at that one week when she got one hot meal, um, one good hot meal a, a day for a whole week. It's amazing to think that there's still hunger in the Mississippi Delta today. There is. There is. They, um, they call it food insecurity, but, um, you know, which is a more kind of abstract idea but uh it is and you know part of it is some of the kind of thing that rural um rural america are struggling with all over is that you know um that there's food deserts you have to maybe you don't have much transportation one of the women who met kennedy as a young person um in 67 she lives about 10 miles from the nearest store and she doesn't drive. She can't drive. Um, she doesn't have a car that works. Um, so she has to pay some, well, her, her nephew takes care of her, but if he wasn't there, she'd have to pay somebody to take her or, or somebody would have to just do it out of the kindness of her heart. And she, um, you know, it's not like she can just put it on her credit card and have, have Amazon ship it to her. Um, so, so there's some a lot of food deserts opening opening up, and it's strange in the, one of the most fertile places in America. And people do garden, but that that won't take care of you all year. Usually, you have to have some experience and money to do that. Um, you know, to preserve things in jars and so forth. But um, so yeah, it is kind of amazing. But 42 percent of families in um, 
one of the Delta counties in Mississippi uh, live in what they call food insecure households, which means they run out of food at, um, at least once every month. When you wrote the book, Ellen, who did you have in mind to read it? Who did you want to read it? Well, I want to, you know, I really want, I wanted it to be, I wrote it for a general audience. I wanted, um, I teach college students, and so I kind of aimed it sort of at them and with a, uh, thinking about how little they understand or know or remember about um, those times. And so I, I didn't try to assume that everybody, you know, knew what the Civil Rights Act was or whatever. So I tried to explain it without being insulting. And so I really wanted just an uh, a average audience. I'd written for newspapers, and so I just thought of the average newspaper reader. Um, so I tried to tell a really good story. I wanted to give some people, and luckily I had a great story, a compelling story to tell. Um, I tried to give people, um, you know, value for their money, that it would be written well enough that they would want to read it and enjoy reading it. It wasn't just a history book or an um, academic kind of book. Of course, I, was, I had to document everything because it was published by University Press, but they were great to work with me to make it accessible and lots of photos and th- those kinds of things, so. What's the next book, Ellen Meacham? Well, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you swear you'll never write another. But I got a few ideas kicking around, um, but nothing I've settled on yet. I'm, right now, I'm just enjoying this, and um, there's story, the, there's stories everywhere, though, and that's the great thing about um, being a reporter and being a journalist is that you see them everywhere and you get a chance to tell them. How did writing the story change you? Uh, well, that's a good question as well. You know, in a couple of different ways. One, it made me much more aware of, you know, the county I live in is a, a university here. It's kind of an oasis in Mississippi, and um, uh, it's, you know, got a lot of great things with the university and libraries, and, you know, it seems very prosperous, um, especially compared to the rest of Mississippi. But, you know, one in four children, that's, that's 20, 25% in my county, don't get enough uh, to eat. So I um, have been much more aware of just what's around me and what I'm seeing. That's one thing. Um, You know, I had to kind of um, do a little bit of an inside job to just, this was my first book, and to to really um, stick to it and get it done and and sort of realize my vision. You know, I, I joke and say that if you had known me, um, in high school or college, you probably I would have been voted girl most likely to talk about writing a book, but never actually <laughs> write one. <laughs> and so now I've had to kind of revise my my perception of myself because I finished it, finished this, and um, stuck with it. So. And I'd like to say thank you to Ellen Meacham for the interview this morning for her new book, Delta Epiphany, RFK in Mississippi. And I'm sure RFK would be proud if he could read the book today. Oh, well, thank you. Um, And they can go to my website. I have a website, um, www.ellenmeacham, that's M-E-A-C-H-A-M, dot com. And then you can get the book on, it's on, uh, in your local bookstore, can order it or will carry it, or you can um, get it from one of the online places like Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Thank you, Ellen Meacham. Great. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Ann Tidman-Solomon, my dear wife, and associate producer. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. There's nothing left to say, but 
See you soon.